Welcome to the CoinGam Podcast. I'm your host, Fritz Charles. On this podcast, we attack the crypto asset and blockchain space from all angles, from the underlying technology to the economic impact. Every single episode, we try to look at the blockchain space from a new lens, and this episode was no different. But before we start this episode, I wanted to share a bit about our advisory services. We've built a huge network of blockchain professionals who can help you out with your projects. Whether you want to launch an ICO or you're just looking to do some deeper research, we can put you in the right place. We have advisors, blockchain developers, and legal professionals. If you need help, just visit us at coingamma.com. Now, let's start the episode. Hello, welcome to the CoinGam Podcast, where we aim to demystify cryptocurrencies. We have an illustrious guest on the podcast today, Patrick Dugan, CEO of Trade Layer, to come and talk about his project, teach us a little bit about decentralized exchanges, and tell us a little bit about his background. Patrick, yeah, hey. thanks for being on the podcast, and thanks for lending your time to myself and my guests. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great pleasure, and... Um... So yeah, to answer your questions, um, I uh, started out as a young fella in uh, game design, sure. and uh, my entrepreneurial my my need to learn about money led me into trading around that time, and also led me down to Argentina because it was very cheap to work with people. Awesome. And then um, I got kind of jaded on that after going through the social games boom. So the whole boom bust cycle that we're in. Obviously, this is a lot bigger, but I, I got a nice micro glimpse of it in games, which I didn't expect. Back in like 2010, 2011, uh, I had yeah, a career yeah. as a consultant. Did a, I, I, that's when I spent a little time in the Bay Area. Um, this, is, working. This, is a, this is the Zynga heyday, right? That was the Zynga heyday, yeah. So I worked for a, uh, a company called Boss2 that was started by some Harvard Business School grads, one of whom went on to start Oscar Insurance, uh, who I quite liked. That guy was really smart. The other guy, uh, the CEO, little bit less warm feeling for it but it was very cynical it was like copying zynga like bone to bone man they even recreated some of the bugs and they ended up getting sued uh by zynga and and i think they had to pay zynga some millions for that no that's crazy you Um, know what's interesting is i have a that's kind of how i came across crypto um i spent some time in the gaming space and zynga kind of created this whole thing where you did you had that that you know those NBA slash X Wall Street people come into the gaming world and just like right. make gaming very analytical. So it yes. sounds like you were part of that movement as well. I, that yeah, that was ground zero. I mean, before that, uh, I was doing indie stuff and I worked with some Argentines making Wii games, and it was still very much like oh you know we're gonna create art. But yeah, it was like oh I'm in a hedge fund now, and I kind of like that. Um, I should have worked in an actual hedge fund, and then I would have made a lot more money, right? Yeah, that's but, all right. <laughs> but it was it was interesting, and then that peaked for me with uh, possibly doing a game for the Kardashians, and then th- that was when they did like the fake wedding with like Chris Humphries and everything. Sure. And uh, well, well, you know, it was a real wedding, and then they got divorced, whatever. Right, right. And um, <laughs> you know, the, the the revenue was real. We know that. Um, and I was just like, you know, Chris Jenner like couldn't bother to like sign a name and likeness license. Like we had funding from other parties. You know, it was, it was all ready to go. So after that, I was kind of jaded. And I, I bounced off to um, sustainable farming, and that brought me to Chile. I was in startup Chile. Okay. Uh, I was going to meetings with a bunch of farmers. I had a nice supply chain, a nice arrangement of products. But you know, down here, it's like people are uh, even rich people. Uh, you know, they don't care. They don't want. It's not California or whatever. You know, right. they don't want, or Seattle. They don't want to pay a premium for avocado toast. That's like, I mean, well, speaking of which avocado toast here is very cheap because we produce avocados okay. uh, more, more cheaply than anywhere in the world. It's like the perfect climate for it. It's like is, a national is it staple. As, is it as popular avocado toast? It, it's, it's more popular because it's something that people have been eating for generations. It's not like, Ooh, it's a millennial thing. You know what I mean? Like yeah, the idea cool. that people, yeah, yeah. You get like a like 50 cents an avocado approximately. So the idea that people are paying 13 bucks for avocado toast is pretty laughable to me, but you know, right. I mean, that's, I mean, I went, I was in California recently, you know, I, I paid 13 bucks for a Bloody Mary at brunch, so whatever. But um, <laughs> yeah, so so that was wild. And then, you know, doing the ideological thing and being this like pure hearted, like, you know, I was biking around a lot doing deliveries and, uh, you know, it's for the environment. We're going to turn around climate change with better land management. 
was kind of the vision. And I wanted to securitize farms. That was the main goal. But I got into the e-commerce as a way to try and, and foment that okay. organically. And I, and I had like no funding. It was it was really brutal. And I was like doing deliveries on a Sunday and netting just enough revenue to like pay the driver. You know what I mean? And, right. and like that's working on a Sunday. So, so I, that was like the opposite direction. You know, instead of being like too schmaltzy and, and like burning me out that way, it was like too – too frugal you know too lean so um around that time i got robbed in argentina at gunpoint lost all my money oh i'm sorry Uh, to hear that well it was a long time ago actually it was one of the best things that ever happened to me in a way because a i didn't get murdered so that's great um you can always that's like a call option you know for free basically and um and b i learned about bitcoin which is like another call option it was a much bigger one so um yeah argentina was one of the yeah argentina was one of the main um hubs um especially right now time because i think they had a little they had a huge devaluation of their currency recently Uh, yeah but back then it was with capital controls now there's a free account and it's it's still popular there the the perennial desire to devalue their currency has kept people into it but when i was living there and, and in that time as well there were capital controls so it's like you had to go to some guy who would buy your, your bitcoins from you to get is money? This when, is this when uh, Nestor or was it Christina Kitchen? It was Christina. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, so, like, Nestor was playing this kind of like center left game around the commodities game. So, you know, it's like capitalism at the macro, socialism at the micro. And it was kind of working because Argentina was totally wrecked, right? Sure. And then Christina took over and then he died, like, sort of youngish for, you know, an old guy. Uh, you know, he's like 58 or whatever. And, um, and then she kind of like, it's like, if you're getting on the highway and you don't like keep like shifting gears to accelerate and you're just, you're grinding in like third gear or something going, uh, you know, 80 miles an hour. Uh, that's sort of what it felt like economically. And I was like young and, and I was, you know, caught up with these chicks and having kids and everything. It was really stressful. time. Right, yeah. Right. And, and the inflation was nuts. So, you know, if your salary's in pesos, it's a precarious situation. And, um, <laughs> And then I ended up being in this weird, like, cypherpunk reality where it's like everything's crappy, but it's sci-fi and there's sci-fi money. Um, you know what I mean? It was like right. a William Gibson novel uh, with Latin American characteristics. Um, yeah, so that, that launched me into it, man. And so I've, I've, like, from the very beginning, been in crypto from a, like, weirdo punk, like, you know, world traveler, upside down reality kind of hanged man perspective. If you know the tarot, the hanged man archetype, right. I think fits with with <laughs> the feeling. And, uh, you know, wanting to um, have a better world. And I'll also just, you know, it's gotten me out. Like I was in and out of money back in the day. And then, you know, I've, man- I've learned how to manage money and being a, a trader for enough years. Okay. Uh, you start to get pretty good at that. And um, and then my, my love of derivatives goes back to probably when I read Sajit Das uh, when I was in the early days, in the video game days, okay. like 2008, 2009. He has a book called Traders, Guns, and Derivatives, uh, which I thought was uh, a lot of fun. It actually is very educational. Yeah. Um, so uh, and another one uh, called uh, An Engine, Not a Camera, which was dissecting how the different theories in finance created these bubbles that were based on the kind of, you know, Godelian blind spot of those theories, you know, and I think I thought that was the most fascinating thing. And I was like, you know, it, I would aspire to do something like like Scholes, for example, uh, but then not have like a hedge fund that blows up or what, or all the other messes that, that they got, those guys made, you know what I mean? Like no, try to sure. do better than yeah. that. Have like learn from the past, have a little bit of uh, moral hazard uh, consideration. Exactly. Um, for those, for those of uh, our listeners who, who are not familiar with some of the terms uh, or like Scholes, Scholes, um, you know, was one of the uh, creators of, of option theory. Um, they, he was part of uh, the black Scholes model and uh, he was was it long term capital management? Was this that's what they called it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Long term capital management <laughs> in the late nineties was a huge uh, hedge fund trading platform, depending on how you call it, and uh, they blew up. And so that was one of the bigger financial crises, obviously, until about ten years later when you know the mortgage backed security crisis happened. Um, but you know, you know what's funny is that the way that they traded is in with a much, much less leverage, sort of how I trade. Sure. So they, they would try to exploit little deviations between interest rates and different 
bonds or futures or swaps, right? Which swaps are kind of like futures that that pay you periodically instead of just having a a settle up where okay, what's the price? Okay, now you you know your unrealized profits in your pocket. It's like you know they'll do that, but they'll also have uh, like in Bitmax's case, they they pay you every eight hours, right. or 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 you pay. It depends on which side you're on, and that that we can get into that later. But uh, that's the key difference between a swap. It's kind of like a future. But there's this uh, periodic payment mechanism. Got it. Got uh, it. Got it. Yeah. So so then you can, if you can like jump in on one thing and and go they they would go like a hundred x long or whatever, right? Like because they people loved them. Like they would give them credit lines. You know, it was like Solomon Brothers before that in the eighties. They they would just get credit lines from banks, and it was like you know how much leverage are we really using? It's like it's all leverage, and um, you know so for the equity on their balance sheet. They would end up with like a hundred billion dollar position. It was like a few billion dollars in the fund, which seems big. But the, you know, they they'd squeeze that up, and then everything would tend to mean revert, or coupons come out over time, and you get interest payments or whatever, and and it works out for you. But what what sunk them was the Russian financial crisis, and a contagion of of other the Russian default and the Asian financial crisis that that preceded it. So. Asia 97, Russia 98. And it right. was like one month where they just lost all their money. I mean, they were losing like a hundred, they were losing like a million dollars a minute. Yeah, it's crazy. You know? It's one of those things yeah. where like, you know, when you have uh, programmatic models that are based on rela relationships between assets, they work until they don't work, right? Until the relationship is no, no longer there. Um, also, man, you know, we definitely dig into that. But, you know, Tell us when did you come up with Trade Layer? Like what? What made? I guess obviously you gave us a background as why you were really into derivatives, but like at what point did you decide? Like you know what? I'm gonna jump up and create my own trading platform or exchange. So I got involved with uh, Mastercoin Project, which later rebranded to OmniLayer. Okay. In twenty in 2014, I hit on the and Mastercoin site. was one of the first ICOs. It was ever. the first ICO. You see? Wow. Yeah. Wow. And and uh, a great uh, story about the problems with ICOs as well. So, you know, they're like that treasury is not intact today, you know, managing like I'm funding uh, the development of trade layer, uh, which is branching off of that over the last year and some change, uh, mostly out of pretty much out of pocket. Um, okay. I've got I've gotten a little bit of uh, a few investors slash advisors uh, who chipped in a little bit. Uh, but it's mostly been it's been like 60 ish percent like and some change uh, coming out of my pocket, which is cool, you know, because we had a good year last year. And this is like building for real. Right. Like of instead course. of hodling uh, some some altcoins or whatever. Right. I like, you know, I, I saw it in 2013, how late in the game, the the really extreme beta stuff like goes crazy. Right. And you get. Oh, okay, it's too late for Bitcoin, but people FOMO into these other coins. And then if you can nail that and you can take out a bunch of BTCs and then you can lock that in in dollars, then you like play the parabola like perfectly, right? So I didn't do that in 2013. And then I was like struggling financially for a few years through the bear market. So this year, the last year, this time around, I learned from my mistake. Um, so yeah, I, I was involved with Omni uh, since 14 and 15. I, I kind of took over after there was like no money. I got some money back. Uh, we have like a distributed team. So I man we managed to ship some stuff in, in 16 and I was trading the treasury and uh, struggling to keep up with payrolls, but somehow, you know, managed to pull it off. Um, and so we shipped at the end of 2016 and activated the DAX for tokens to trade with each other. So in Omni, in, in an Omni type environment, it's on a blockchain like Bitcoin. So Omni's on Bitcoin. Or like right now we're preparing to launch something on Litecoin. Okay. Um, so you have standard-ish standard transactions. They have to have a dust output. They have an op return. Uh, you put in a message. That message gets parsed by other clients. So it's just like you're running another Bitcoin QT or Litecoin QT type client, but it has this other folder of, of a bunch of new C++ that has these transaction types, finds them, you know, allows you to put them out, uh, allows you to parse them. That gets coagulated into a big consensus hash that tells you where are all the balances, where are all the order book states, et cetera. There's 
several data structures that, that get souped up into that. Uh, and then everybody has to agree on that consensus hash. So that's, that's how Omni works. And then you're like leveraging Bitcoin's security or Litecoin security. And then you can do permissionless innovation with that. So that, that was very exciting. And then realizing very early on, okay, we want to have derivatives so we can have leverage because leverage is cool, right? It was yeah. more for that initially. And then I realized it's not just because leverage is cool. It's because being hedged in the same against the same thing that you're using as collateral uh, with an inverse contract. So that's like what BitMEX uses where um, your the BTC value changes as the price moves. So if the price dropped and you were short, then uh, the BTC value would double and you still have the same amount of dollars, right? Of and of course, the longs are, are wrecked in that case, right? So it's it. it's more precarious uh, to be long, I guess, one of those contracts. But uh, what it does is it gives you, it like really is a, like a core use case for cryptocurrency as a settlement to peg it to a dollar, not based on like, oh, we've got some bank account somewhere. It's based on just peer-to-peer -peer contracts and cryptocurrency. And I call that decentralized banking because it's like a truly parallel form of money supply that's based on this steady reserve instead of fractional. Wait, hold on. Right? Let's let's kind of go back. So yeah. you mentioned a, a peg to a dollar. Right now we're we're undergoing like this huge like stable coin bubble. The stable coins right. that come out every week. Does your platform have some sort of stable coin or tether type instrument? Or so, is it all just synthetic? Yeah, so uh, there's going to be the synthetic, which is going to be back based on this uh, our version of, of Omni, basically. Uh, on Litecoin, it's going to be called ALL. On Bitcoin, uh, I'm thinking about calling it total because it kind of lends itself towards maximalism. You know, it's like total. It's like totality of Bitcoin. Um, and it could be a tool for maximalists potentially to, to have portfolios that accrue more Bitcoin potentially. So I don't want to make any like, oh, you'll you'll generate financial alpha trading. It's, you may or may not. It's risky, right? But uh, with hedge strategies, like you could buy Litecoin and sell Litecoin futures. That's like interest-bearing Bitcoin, right? You're capturing that that Bitcoin-denominated sure. premium. So um, there's a lot of strategies that people can employ, and um, the the value of the regulated stable coins is definitely there, and it's a nice complementary thing. In fact, when Craig Sellers uh, who has been uh, was on the board with me uh, at Omni um, when he was talking about Tether back before it came out, and I was like, "Yeah, like this is going to be good." And we were talking about, "Okay, there's going to be this kind of dollar coin, and there's going to be this other kind of dollar coin, and they can complement each other." And uh, you know, we had a nice vision, I think, about that. I don't know what happened there, kind of decohered. But uh, you know, Tether kind of became its own monster, right? It, it got too big for its britches, and there's this really horrible asymmetry in the ability to audit it and the ability to know that you know you're you're not going to lose it for like a four-year legal proceeding to like the doj or whatever right mm -hmm. um in, in case they get round wound up in some big uh, conspiracy to commit money laundering case which they very well could because when they lost banking they had a one-way withdrawal from btce and btce basically tokenized their dollar balance sheet which is backed by like you know bulgarian banks or whatever like just like aml wasteland you know what i mean that's like close. uh so i think that's a smoking gun that's going to come back to haunt them so meanwhile we got paxos coin from itbit who i quite like uh we got gemini usd uh, i met the uh product manager on that he's a really smart guy um and uh what's the other one there oh, circle usd right so they're sure. all making inroads and tether is massively redeeming tokens from this recent break so you know we're already seeing this crypto dollarization story playing out with things like BitMEX swapping popular and having like over half a billion in open interest. And now these regulated stable coins and obviously Tether before that, it's like, yeah, Tether's not like a perfect product, but the demand was so great and it was a good enough thing. It was better than new bits, which broke its peg. Uh, but back in 2015, when Tether was young, new bits was considered maybe uh, the thing that like Poloniex wanted and, and new bits was doing more volume funnily enough. Um, so yeah, they're going to play a role and it's nice to have something that you have like a nine, 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 nine percent confidence in that pays you like that one basis point or whatever. So are you, right? you going to incorporate in Gemini or Circle or any of these, uh, stable coins into your platform? Well, actually I'm working with a, uh, startup called Equibank that has a Cayman licensed bank and centralized exchange. Uh, I've been calling them, uh, jokingly, uh, legit Finex cause they could really, 
be a legitimate auditable uh, alternative as far as offshore fiat uh, interactivity uh, to Bitfinex. Uh, and then obviously onshore is great, but onshore is kind of its own genre and it's more for U.S. persons, which is a big market. But you know, we saw the role Bitfinex came into play, right? And it was it was structural. So I might work with Equibank uh, to have them issue a dollar coin uh, since they're a little closer. But yeah, you know, I'd love to uh, go back and, and talk with uh, the guys at Paxos or at Gemini and uh, see if they're interested in issuing on Litecoin uh, using Trade Layer. That would be cool. Uh, and then you could potentially have contracts that are margined by these things. Uh, they could be Oracle contracts. So there, there's two ways you can settle an on-chain derivative with the data, right? You can have an Oracle that you sort of trust, or it could be a multi-sig, or it could be a pool of different uh, people who check each other that are, are publishing it. But but at some level, you, you're trusting someone, uh, but it's efficient. So that's a good starting point. That's a nice way to get immediate uh, liquidity. But then once you have enough on-chain token trading, whether it's Litecoin against tokens or tokens against tokens, um, you can then use that as an on-chain data reference to settle 100% native contracts. And if you're trying to create a, a really independent decentralized banking system, that is the end goal. But it's not the starting point, obviously, because you have to build up to that. Awesome. So, yeah, we ran really deep. Let's take a step back. <laughs> Why? Yes. Decentralized. Why is that important? Why Why can I just use BitMEX? Why can't I use Coinbase? Why, why, what is the value there? So I'm about to publish our white paper, which I just took the Bitcoin white paper template and I, I worked through it and added some. So I kept it nice and concise. That's uh, the 10 year anniversary in a couple of days. Yeah. And I'm working on uh, putting on the finishing touches uh, so we can make it, you know, uh, symbolic and thematic that way. And, and I took I take the exact words that he started the white paper with, like the trust-based model has failed and, and I like play off of that. I'm like, the trust-based model is still part of the cryptocurrency ecosystem. How do we fix that, right? right? So there's this ideological, idealistic dream that, oh, we'll just decentralize all the things and exchange is a core use case of Bitcoin and and at all, you know, of crypto assets in general. Um, not necessarily you end up a token that accrues cash flows from a D app or whatever. That's not supposed to be money, but, but you know what I mean? Like exchanges, but even then you need exchange. So, um, if we can have everything be native to the core stack foundationally, and then that can stretch and be a little bit less decentralized in order to be faster and cheaper and less data intensive, such as using uh, different kinds of side chains. So we're gonna use Tendermint, where you pledge collateral, it's sort of like a proof of stake thing. And then it's a side chain, it can be very fast, one second blocks. And those people who are validators are also dealers and they have a quote that they've uh, publicly, you know, the different pools can have different parameters that compete in an open market. But they can say, you know, we're gonna commit to quoting like $10,000 deep with this 50 cent tick size or this one, you know, $1 tick size. And, and every second you're gonna be able to jump in and, and get to know that. So you get around this latency problem, like the, the real problem with DEXs and the reason like why, for example, OmniLayer didn't take off, right? That was like 2016, 17, the fees were quite high, right? right. So it was, it was immediately obvious that that's problematic. You also have this issue that quoting and paying for cancels is a nightmare, right? So with uh, the side chains, you'll just be able to send uh, messages to the validators in this one second latency and update your orders uh, a lot, right? Like like a bot quoting left and right all day long. And, and only when there's an actual match will that uh, pool have to publish a reference transaction and referee on that uh, and change the way that the otherwise you know, normal order book matching on chain would, would work, right? So that gets you part of the way there. And then let's say one day uh, we fill up Litecoin with transactions and, you know, the fees are high, the fees are high. People should have the option to do some, do a single transaction that vouches your money to a side chain, trade all you want there uh, and, and go even less decentralized and get even more efficiency. So there's going to be this spectrum and there already is in the current offerings like you hear about like IDEX, like, oh, we're not gonna, we're gonna delist this. Well, what kind of a DEX are you if you can list and delist things, right? They're, re right? They're really running a registry on a trusted SSL certificate 
based website that you go to to interact with what ultimately produces on-chain transactions that get into the Ethereum blockchain. So they're, they're like infrastructurally not all the way to the end. So I think if you provide infrastructure that takes you all the way to the end and as is as just as decentralized as these as Bitcoin and Litecoin can be, um, and then you can have these layer two solutions that that give you the the performance you want, right? And that allow you to save money. Um, but but like if the root is just a bunch of corporate checking accounts and a bunch of trusted coin custodians, then we haven't accomplished anything. <laughs> no, I understand. It, you feel me? Like so, I mean, some people might disagree with that. I know I know a guy who runs an exchange where it's sort of like they have multi sigs, so the custody is sort of decentralized enough. But then it's a central order book matching system that's like more in the middle of the spectrum, right? And so he he always says, oh, uh, this guy, uh, Matthias Gronbeck, you might want to have him on. He's an interesting character. Uh, but he always poo-poos decentralized exchanges. But I think got it. I think that's because he's like talking his own book. So, right, yeah, right. People, people have different opinions. Well, well a big thing, one of the big reasons people like decentralized exchanges or people pushing for them is because um, less hack risk, right? So that's a, that's a big one, yeah. Yeah, so I guess that's one of the benefits of your platform, I assume. But, that it but cannot be hacked. But then you're taking the risk of your your own keys being hacked, right? Sure. And most people are not uh, capable of like if you're in Fidelity and you've got hired there to be their you know private key custodian technician guy, then that's your job, and and you can make a you know you can make good work out of it, and you can make it very efficient and so on. But you know for the everyday person, it's problematic. So we have a couple of ideas there. One is a savings address. So you can't spend money off of it. Um, it takes like a, I mean, you can, but it, it, it takes a certain number of blocks for essentially the check to clear, right? Okay. Uh, so, so you have some some flexibility there. If somebody were to gank your key and generate a transaction, you have a time window to cancel it, which is kind of useful. So then the other thing there is what about physical security compromises, right? Like somebody puts, uh, you know, threatens you with violence. I won't go into too much detail and be lurid here, but. Yeah, you know, it could be ugly, right? So then they're going to coerce you into giving away all your single key money. The only way to really protect against that, the time lock is nice, but you really need multi-factor. So you need to be able to have private keys on a multi-sig that are held by trustees, and the cost of that needs to get brought down very close uh, to zero. And I think uh, with something like a Tendermint sidechain with collateralized validators who are also these... Uh, trustees, right? And then they could have like a customer service interface. They have protocols about security and fraud prevention like banks do, maybe a little more intelligent than what banks have today. Um, and things like, you know, they help, if you want to send a million bucks off the address, you know, you got, you got to call them or something and then they're going to try to pick up if you're under duress or whatever, you know, like these layers can be introduced. Um, so that, that custodial problem is a huge part of it. We're going to blur the line between registered assets and bearer assets. So you have the, the sovereignty and the freedom of a bearer asset and the unseizability to some extent. Um, and then what about these trustees, right? They give you the backup, they allow you to sleep safe at night to some extent, but how can you trust them? Well, they've pledged a lot of money and if one of them or, or a quorum of them acts out of line, then you could check them and we're gonna we're working on an SPB proof claim transaction, so you can on chain say this side chain is bogus. I demand my money back, and and that can be verified. So got that's it, that's still it. an R and D. But yeah, so like all these layers come together so that uh, you can get the best of both worlds, and we can solve. Like yes, of course, just making everybody responsible for their own security isn't really a solution to to really make decentralization viable you have to replicate a lot of the things we take for granted with centralized services and make those more decentralized as well, right? So it's, it. it's a lot of work, but yeah, that's, well, that's on the roadmap. Awesome, awesome. I guess, that's, is that the main difference between yourself and some of the other decentralized platforms that have come out, like Zero X, AirSwap, EtherDelta, and I hear it, even Binance is coming out with their own decentralized exchange? Yeah, and so is uh, I think Coinbase. Everybody's positioning to to transition into that, and then they also know that on the centralized exchange side, guys like Bact and uh, and some of these other groups are, are gonna you know 
charge like a dollar fifty for a million dollar face value trade, right? I mean, there's sure. just going to be like a, a flat ticket price or something like that. So they can't compete with that. Their fees are ridiculous, and um, you know they're decent at custody, so they've leveraged that. Yeah, I mean, all right. So like zero x structurally, you put a transaction out, it gets sorted both to the mempool of, of ether of Ethereum and to this sort of sidechain type centralized order book, which they call a relayer. And it's actually more centralized at that level than what I'm trying to do with the, the Tendermint stuff. Uh, so for instance, Radar Relay, they've raised like 10 million bucks recently. Uh, that's one relayer. They have a lot of volume. So they each make their own interface and they handle that information service, but there's ultimately smart contract custody and it clears, right? So to the extent that you have that that kind of native hybridness that's similar enough, I, I'd say that's the most uh, decent analogy, but we're trying to do better at the level of these um, sort of validator trustees of your trades, the, the, the order book operators, uh, make them more accountable. Uh, well, I mean, okay, it's not like, I mean, you can't get robbed in the Xerox contract by Rater Relay, but, right, um, right. but, but, but Rater Relay can control you know, what gets listed and so on. So I suppose the Tendermint uh, validator pools would be like a lower upkeep version. Like you could have one website where you have an interface to all these pools, right? It's not like we're competing, uh, everybody's gonna be competing for traffic, but they could be competing for liquidity, right? So one order book pool is gonna say, you know, we're committing to this quote size and and so on and, and compete on that basis. Um, but like a big thing is what what is available to trade on these DEXs, okay? So you've got Suma One and some of these smart guys, they're doing uh, plumbing for cross-chain atomic swaps. So now you can have altcoin exchanges on the blockchains themselves, people ending, getting physically delivered in the different coins. That's cool. Uh, you could If you can do that without leverage, you can have on-chain trade data that you can then have leveraged derivatives for. So that's, that's interesting. Um, and, and there's a limited amount of potential value there, I guess. I mean, if you're like anywhere close to being a maximalist, and I've been in this long enough that I do have to concede that Bitcoin, like most things against Bitcoin don't really hold up over the long term. Some things do to some extent, and that's, I think, interesting. I'm not hey, like all actually, actually, I was going to ask you about that because I noticed that, you know, all these other platforms are built on, you know, Ethereum, basically. Um, yeah. you, you've purposely have been building, you're building on, on something that builds on top of Bitcoin and you even including Litecoin, which is obviously just, just Bitcoin, but you know, with, with tweaks. So yeah, I have I, like a broader view of what Bitcoin is, but yeah, I like the Bitcoin protocol as, as a sort of platonic family. Now, now you're, I mean, yeah. you're, you're like, you're like what I call a crypto OG, right? So you were part of MasterCoin, <laughs> you've been, you know, you and Argentina and on, on the ground when things were kind of being created and, and launched. So I don't know, is it something where you, you know, you just want to, you consider yourself a purist or did you not, did you look at Ethereum or the Ethereum blockchain Man, and say that's, that wasn't a good way to do it? I, I bought some in the ICO. I flipped it real quick and then it came back down in early 16. I could have bought it, you know, for like 15 cents or whatever. And it was like, I was looking at the order book and there's like a real fat buy supply coming in. And I was like, you know, I could snipe some of these orders. It might be good for a double. And I said, you know what? I'm not even going to trade this shit. Like, fuck Ethereum. Huh. And that was a mis that was a mistake, you know? Okay. That was a mistake because I would have made some money, but I, w I wouldn't have held it to 200 or 500 bucks. I would have right. flipped it. I would have sold it, uh, you know, at 10 bucks or something. But, um, yeah, um, I, I think uh, proof of stake, you know, what they're trying to transition to as, like, a root uh, thing is, is less tenable. Like, the CapEx sunk cost of proof of work creates some layers of resiliency that I think are, are pretty valuable. Uh, so I like leaning on that. I think that uh, people are going to like a, you know, Bitcoin based. I mean, so I'm not the only one working on Bitcoin, like there's Rootstock, okay. uh, there's Zen protocol, sure. uh, honorable mention, uh, my legal advisor advises them. Um, so why tap, tap tip to them. Um, so yeah, and, and I'm not like, oh, it's gotta be BTC. Like, uh, we're going to be able to port to, you know, from Litecoin to Bitcoin and we might do some other ports at a later time, uh, you know, see what the market demand is. Um, but I see it as, as this, you know, bigger system and, uh, yeah, I think the, the whole sovereign money thing is, is absolutely fundamental. I just want people to be able to have dollars. Um, but I will say that I'm not 100% a purist maximalist in that 
we are doing uh, a founder reward and we're also like creating this parallel money supply uh that that happens to be not like to log jam like trying to get rich off of people onto the public so much as there needs to be a money supply that works in this environment like a so i've designed it so people can get paid for market making orders right people oh, wow. can get paid for uh running full nodes sure. right so there's a subsidy there and um and then I think people need to be able to have dollars on the blockchain or whatever their currency that they choose is. Got it. Um, not just be long this commodity. And once we create this two-way market, we create native organic demand for transactions uh, because people need to trade. Uh, we create uh, in the form of fee revenue, which you need to offset wash trading. If there's no fees, then people can wash trade all, all over and there's no value in the data. Um, that 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 creates native cash flow. Like I think that's very probably like very valuable. That's a new precedent. Um, so I'm I'm like you know I'm in the middle. I'm like you know I'm like a moderate centrist or whatever like in this in this stuff. But like you know the data speaks for itself. Like Bitcoin uh, has dominated because Bitcoin has a very small trading flow, right? right? Because there's this like sedimentary rock layers from each year coins get minted. It takes about a year or two to trade into the arms of a hodler. And then hodl the hodl on they they shall right and there's this only this tip of coins that came out in the last year or so uh, that are that are or maybe two years that are being actively traded right exactly. so that's so like in Litecoin's case Litecoin has to overcome so much more absorption just because their float is like eighty percent of the money supply and Bitcoin's float is like twenty percent of the money supply and I think in Ethereum's case there's these there's too much insider pre-mine stuff, right? So I don't like pre-mines. Um, so like we're doing a founder reward where uh, we start to accrue uh, a capped amount, which is ultimately ultimately going to be less than 5% of the money supply. So, so you're doing uh, your own coin? Yeah, well, it's like, uh, it's, it's like a, it's a meta coin, like Omni. Okay. But, okay. but yeah, we're not doing like a pre-mine for ourselves or, or anything like that. We're right. we need- So, so for, yeah, for folks that don't know, what, what is a meta coin? What, what's what's the difference between that versus your normal ICO or your normal utility token? Right. So an altcoin is like, here's some code, turn it on, mine it. There's a blockchain. There's the submission st uh, schedule. And this is a coin like Bitcoin. So that's why they're called altcoins because they're alternatives, right? And then an ICO isn't even an altcoin. It would be like a token that was issued using OmniLayer, for example, MadeSafe. That was an ICO in early 2014. Where you're basically issuing like some kind of debt against future services, or it's a sort of uh, equity against future cash flows, and and people try to dress it up and say it's it's something else, like it's a pre, it's like a legitimate cryptocurrency, but it's pre functionality. Well, that's a security, unfortunately. So you have to find other way. You have to finance it like not so publicly. Sure. Uh, that that's what we learned, uh, you know. And I never did that. I thought I always thought uh, ICOs were, were were a bit much. Um, and and I've I've seen I've seen the inside teams with them and they, things always go badly because there's so much money and, and incentives are just all inverted and, and it's just it's just bad. Like I'm really glad the ISO window is over. So that's that's another category and those might be worth something someday if if a those teams don't you know get hammered legally. B they actually create something with users that generates revenue and then C they actually decide in contravention of A because they're afraid oh what if we admit it's a security by having a buyback or whatever, or a dividend. And a buyback a priori doesn't mean it's a security, but it depends on if it's coming from a treasury or if it's coming from a big big decentralized thing. So a MetaCoin is like its own category where it's native money that comes into existence on an existing blockchain. And the reason that you would do that is to create new functionality. So you wouldn't need to do that like in Ethereum because you just write a smart contract and and you can just say I pledge my n ethers to you know zero x three c nine et cetera contract, and then the code does its thing and you can do whatever you want, but it's very expensive, right? So like Augur is a derivatives exchange that launched, didn't get a whole lot of DAO traction. It turned out to be beyond the legal albatross uh, that they don't like uh, assassination markets and stuff like that. Right. Just it's expensive to execute all that code every time you want to do a trade. Um, so this is kind of in the sweet spot. It's a nice design slice between creating new opcodes on Bitcoin and, and just writing very bug prone uh, VM code on Ethereum, 
We write new C++ that defines new TX types and how it's parsed in the associated logics, how it would affect the tally map of, of all the balances or new or new data structures. And we can and we write that in C++. We test the heck out of it. We put it on testnet, test it more, you know, do a mainnet test ecosystem, you know, give it one last dress rehearsal. And then once we're very confident, we activate it and then it just works, you know, and it's it's solid infrastructure is, is the game. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So, so basically, since you're building on 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 Bitcoin, Litecoin, in the absence of a kind of a smart contract framework, um, this is kind of a, a better replacement. Yeah, it's like introducing some level of native smart contractness to these blockchains. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah. You know, I guess to pivot to so going back to kind of like we talked about a little bit how you're different from some of the um, decentral other decentralized platforms. Um, would you call yourself, there are other platforms that kind of focus more on derivatives. So like BitMEX is probably the most popular, right? Um, they're huge. They're based out of Hong Kong. They've been around for a few years. Would you consider yourself yeah. a decentralized BitMEX? Sure. Yeah. Um, except that, uh, our fee revenue doesn't accrue to three guys, All right. right? So, um, the fee revenue is uh, like my legal advisor suggested I not talk about this cause it's, it might be too touty, but, uh, basically the fee revenue goes back, uh, to the community in the form of, of the coin buybacks, right. Okay. But it's like a decentralized thing. So Got it. that may or may not affect any price performance and full, you know, asterisks, et cetera. Um, but yeah, that's the mechanism. Now, how is your, how is your, your derivative different from the way BitMEX structures theirs? They well, so at the very back back office, the clearing of it is all central on Bitmax, and they have a nice engine for that, and they have this insurance fund that people have said is is not super awesome because, like, you get liquidated uh, a, a fair bit ahead of where you would actually have no margin, and they just take all of the margin that's left over and put it in the insurance fund. So they have this this huge insurance fund. So it's, it, you know, it's kind of cobbled together like that and it's worked pretty well because the engine's fast. There's been enough liquidity. We've had enough of a bull market where all of the margin call, like $10 million red stacks or, or whatever, uh, those ended up getting all gobbled up. So they never really had too much of a, a clawback uh, with any wipeouts in the contract. Um, so our thing is fully uh, decentralized clearing. So we've invented a new graph theory algorithm to path the flow of margin capital between these along these chains of, of counterparties, right? So I trade with you, and then your the trade doesn't go so well for you, so you you bail it off to some other guy, and then he's trading with another guy, and, and on and on it goes, right? Um, and and we can actually settle that contract um, in a completely bilateral fashion. Uh, so that's important. Uh, for future tech, maybe if if things aren't like one big UTXO set, something like Mimblewimble, it's interesting. Such an algorithm maybe could adapt to more lightweight uh, type. Uh, I don't want to say cryptographies, but but architectures of a ledger. Um, and then it's great for regulatory purposes. And it's also nice to know that like we have this this algorithm in science now, where you can just do peer to peer clearing, and there's no. I mean, you'll have some degree of centralization because you're going to have uh, large liquidity providers in in hubbing in sure. these graphs, right? Like right. that's just a natural byproduct of of money and inequality of, of liquidity. But um, but yeah, uh, so I, I like that, and um, we're going to be publishing a paper on that pretty soon. So like, yeah, we're looking forward to that. Well, I guess what's what's the difference? I mean, I, I get the difference between how how they structure their exchange and the clearing. Um, is there a difference between their their actual derivative contract? Versus yours? So uh, BitMEX came out with the idea of a perpetual swap. And when I met with the, uh, Arthur and Ben in 2014, I said, guys, you got to make it super easy for people to just come and get this synthetic dollar and get the interest rate. And like like what you have right now is a product for gearheads who want to like do all these, you know, trade in and out. But like you just need a button where people can just get like dollars. Right. And they were like, ah, you know. And this VC I was with uh, was like an angel investor was like, uh, you know, you shouldn't give away all your ideas to these guys. You know, I'm like, ah, oh, no, but it, you know, it's better if they do it. So I think that might have nudged them. And then eventually they figured out with this daily futures contract that what you really need is a swap. So instead of the money coming from like, you know, the daily contract has like a dollar a day premium or something. And that's very wishy. And there's all these expirations you have to roll and it's a mess. And they couldn't get enough liquidity in the in the one day contract. Um, 
you know, really. So then they came out with this perpetual settlement and then it has to be a swap in order to realize the time value component. So you just get paid periodically, right? And that innovation was, a, I think, a big breakthrough for them. So they kind of, I would say they innovated there. Uh, we're going to do a perpetual swap. Um, I'm going to try to innovate on the interest rate formula. So for them, it's cool because the interest rates on BitMEX go all, you know, they go deeply negative. They go quite positive. This, all, this creates more turnover and volume. Right. And, and they don't really care about what the open interest is. They want the volume to be big. Right. And then and you traditionally you've seen open interest be maybe one eighth of the volume on BitMEX on a good day. So sure. It's been quiet lately where it's gotten close to to parity, maybe a little bit more volume than open interest. Uh, and that's healthy for them. And, and it's kind of a healthy liquidity for a contract in general to have more volume than uh, than OI. But um, in our case, what I'm going to try to do is have something like a, an interest rate put option so that if you're not leveraged and you're just trying to hold these synthetic dollars, you you don't have to worry about negative funding. You can just put it on, and when there's positive funding, that'll be taxed by like a third or something, and that'll go into this cash, essentially buying future protection. And then when there's a prolonged bear market and that runs out, then there would be a sort of a debt, um, and then the leverage shorts they pay or get the full effective rate. And then the longs, uh, you know, it's, it's become quite cheap to borrow and short Bitcoin and other top coins. You can get it for like Fed funds rate wow. and some change. So it's quite cheap. That's like, that's companies like Paxos trying to be competitive with companies like Genesis who, who have been doing that. Genesis charges, a, you know, maybe a two or 3% more, uh, but it's still quite cheap compared to the kind of yields on these things. So if you're buying in a bear market a discounted perpetual swap and then short selling at a reasonable rate of interest, not the Kraken short selling rate, but something like five or six percent PA is good or cheaper. Uh, and then you're getting these these payments and then eventually those payments, if it's if there's no bullish action for months, that might dry up and you might get lower amounts of payments, but it should still be profitable to hold into it. Right. It's also interesting because then the guys who are holding these these dollars, the unlevered shorts, they could choose to redeem the positions out of those dollars and unwind them at the discount. And so, you know, it's a little experimental. I'm not sure, but but yeah, it, some, somebody has to fix this interest rate volatility thing and right. not just have it be like fun to have the interest rates fly, fly around. So once we get a bunch of people playing for this yield instead of playing for like a 10 bagger or something like like was the mood last right. year uh what that does is it soaks up the money supply because you're buying at spot and then you're selling the derivative to some other guy who's like yeah yeah this is gonna catch on i'm gonna double my money etc but um but yeah that i think it's a really healthy thing i think it's it's almost like um, building up the banking sector with good loans or, or something like that. You know what I mean? It capitalizes the the ecosystem and then it makes it really easy or makes it easier to have eventually a short squeeze where people start to take on more risk and there's only so much flow because so many people are, are holding it to have a hedge and, and have the synthetic cash instead of uh, being along Bitcoin. Um, and I think that's what's going to be the engine of the next bull market. And like backed, for example, that's just a one day futures contract, like what BitMEX used to have. But um, you could do it on backed, right? You could sell, you could sell the futures contract on back. You get delivered, you cycle the money over with a wire the next day to, you know, Gemini or something, and uh, and then you buy it and you deliver it and you sell it again. And you could do that every day uh, right, and have right. a, a ref we could calculate a reference rate just from the backed uh, average one day premium on sure. that futures con. So like that's that's an easy one because though you know, as opposed to like figuring out how to get into some layer protocol where you gotta store the money on chain, they're just gonna be able to put the money up with State Street. Um, and uh, you know, it's well that's a different one. That's Gemini dollar. But um, it, you know, you get the idea. Like that's that's what's happening on gotcha. the institutional so, side. So, so in, in essence, you think there's going to be a lot of uh, kind of a delta neutral trading, and people kind of just trying to arbitrage interest rates. Yeah, initially, like I think I think the next let's say ten billion dollars in net inflows will not be like you know so explosive because it's going to be more gradual and it's going to be expanding the open interest. 
in uh, in these various contracts, right? So in Bax's case, they kept it to one day so that all of the uh, Austrian economics guys couldn't criticize them for like you know blithe mastersing the Bitcoin money supply by you know expanding with so many derivatives. Um, so that's cool, I guess. Um, but as far as, as as far as these more native contracts go, though, I think expanding open interest is what you want to see. You want you want it to get to several billion dollars. And then the big trend that I think we should look at, if we consider the open interest of the BitMEX swap and, and some of its ilk, which are much smaller totals, uh, as being this sort of the synthetic crypto dollar supply, and that's sitting at around 600-ish billion dollars. And then we have the uh, banked stablecoin crypto, quote unquote, you know, crypto dollar money supply. It's not, you know, they're not backed by, by cryptocurrency per se, but uh, you know, that's like uh, two to, I think, uh, tethers down to 2.2B and uh, Paxos got to 80 mil, I think, or, or one of those, uh, or, or maybe it was Circle UC. But anyway, so it's only like 2.3B on that side. And so the ratio is about uh, a quarter-ish, right? Uh, about 25%. So when we see that ratio flip, like to me, that's going to be the really interesting flipping, right? right? So we could look at like a backed, open interest as I would say being like more like circle dollar, right? Because right. ultimately there's, it's their custody and it's this U S regulated thing. And you never really have to get on the blockchain to try and deliver to the exchange and, and accrue that daily premium. Right. Um, so I, I would count it like that. And then I would count uh, like my project and, and some of these other ones uh, as like the synthetic side. And, and I would look at when is the synthetic, uh, is it going to flip? The, the regulated, right? Is it going to be a multiple bigger or or is it going to be a fraction of it, like a quarter like it is now, or, or is it going to be like a half, you know? So I'm, I'm going to keep an eye on that number. Um, but like all of these uh, maximalist guys that caught on to this theory of, of hyper Bitcoinization. And I, I think the way that that would look in reality is you would have so much inflation where yields are negative that bank bank sector assets get wiped out by the negative real yields. And then the only people left to like circulate capital would be, uh, you know, these Bitcoin holders, the real, right? And they real would, holders, yeah. Yeah, and, and they would have to have like it. lend, and then they would want to lend their Bitcoin, and then you know maybe inflation's like ten percent, and your cost of capital for your loan is that you pay the the hodler guy like three four percent, and then you have to pay like twenty odd percent a year in futures premium or something like that. Might be less, might be twelve, but um, you know to hedge the upside, and and I think that's a bit of a like that's how I would imagine it actually working, uh, and sure. I, I think it's a, I think it's a bit weird though. I, I think the actual that's kind of that's kind of high. So you said cost of capital ten percent, and you got to pay was it three to four percent? Um, like a yeah, you pay them three three or four percent in Bitcoin, and then you pay like maybe three percent a quarter in futures premium or something like that. All right, so that, that puts you like seventeen percent just to start. Um, but if it's, but if inflation is ten percent, right? Like it becomes like what they had in, in Chile with the high inflation with the Yende and then the, the fascist guy, they couldn't get the, the inflation back in the bottle. So it was only after they got rid of the fascist guy uh, at, in like 1990, they came out with this banker currency called the Unidad de Fomento or unit of fomentation where they index inflation, they issue mortgages in this banker currency. So instead of like hundreds of million, you know, a hundred and some million pesos, it's it's a few thousand uf right and then your payment goes up with inflation but the bank knows that they're guaranteed a real return and that recapitalized the banking sector in chile and allowed chile to become this model economy for latin america so yeah so i think bitcoin could end up being like that for the world but i think in reality more hodlers are going to sell out they're going to want to have these crypto dollars and not be like super super greedy i think it's a minority that's like we're going to be a 100% long Bitcoin until like our grandchildren die or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and that scenario is going to be more what I call hyper, hyper crypto dollarization. So instead of it being like the whole world's going to be dominated by Bitcoin, it's going to be the only decent form of capital to do business with. It's going to be more nuanced than that. Like cryptocurrencies are going to be a huge asset class. Money based on them is going to be a great source of real yield during the backslide of the debt super cycle that I think we're entering into now with rising rates and rising inflation expectations. Um, and and then, you know, you're going to be able to see a great uh, higher pricing, perhaps, because the demand for this uh, cryptocurrency backed money might be many billions of dollars, tens, hundreds, 
trillions. I don't, you know, I don't know, right? But like market caps would need to reflect that of demand. Um, so it's still quite bullish. It's just not like, a, you know, like not everybody's going to be on Lightning Network. Like Lightning Network's great. Uh, we're going to help out some teams that are working on it to adapt our swap, uh, our, our derivatives clearing algo so that you can do swap trading on Lightning. Um, so I support Lightning Network. But um, yeah, I think there's going to be more more of a spectrum, basically. Got it. Got it. That's pretty interesting. So you you, you did swaps. Right versus some of the other, you could have done a forward, you could have done other things. What made you uh, go for swaps? So we wanted to go with the perpetual forward, but but no, but there's no such thing as a perpetual forward yet. So the question is, well, is a perpetual forward just a fancy way of trying to get into the forward exemption of of Dodd Frank? And um, you know, you're you're delivering the, the the holder of the forward another forward position, you know, and then it was like, well people are going to use forwards as an exempt form of taking leverage, but they're supposed to stand for delivery. So if the average person doesn't do that and, and then the CFTC is like, Oh, well this, you know, they're... so basically it seemed like the forward exemption was a much more fine road to walk. And then we learned that there's some actually like pretty neat uh, trading exemptions um, within Dodd-Frank and we are in conversation with uh, CFTC Labs. Uh, we're, well, we're getting ready to send a, uh, an opening letter, letter and, and open up that conversation prior to our launch to make sure that we're kind of in the sandbox, so to speak, the regulatory sandbox. And I, I always uh, thought know. decentralized exchanges don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Well, you know, okay, so that's really interesting, right? Like, so there was a guy, a CFTC guy recently made comments that if you publish, which you, you know, the, they can't, priorly restrain you against publishing, but you publish something that you reasonably foresee U.S. persons could use to break, you know, Commodities Exchange Act law or whatever, uh, then, you know, you might be culpable. You might be considered an, uh, an accomplice at some level. Um, and then there's also like uh, attractive nuisance doctrine, which is a little bit more loose. It's like you built a really sweet, uh, treehouse in your backyard and the neighbor kid like climbed your fence and broke his arm or, or, or climbed the treehouse and broke his arm, something like that. So they could sue you on the attractive nuisance doctrine. Right. So maybe, uh, interesting. maybe yeah. So maybe a P2P protocol could be argued to be an attractive nuisance. Like it was a fun thing that got kids in trouble. Um, so you, you definitely have to worry about general liability. You have to be very careful about publishing uh, and activating as far as like technical due diligence goes. You don't want to be like Gavin Wood locking up all this money in multi-sig wallets, uh, something like that, right? Uh, or the Dow, right? right. Um, so that's like square one, and it, everybody agrees on that. And that's that's like okay, you, you don't get to launch right away. You got to work harder to really make sure. Okay, so then as far as like SEC or CFTC compliance goes, I, I don't think that that guy's comments were necessarily like constitutional or, or legally correct. It was him sort of speculating about it. So the approach that we're taking there um, is we're going to publish it where at, at the default you're in regulated mode or, yeah, I, I guess it would have to be like that at a protocol level. And then um, you can very easily opt out of it and have a TX that's basically raising your hand and, and declaring that you are a resident of a jurisdiction that does not regulate derivatives. So you're good. And then you can just trade natively, right? Awesome. Um, so it's a little bit of friction uh, to kind of cover my butt. And I'm sure someone could like fork it and have a version where you don't have to put that TX out. And it's just the the anarchist version. Uh, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a non-anonymous uh, man right. who, is, who is a U.S. citizen um, who, you know, wants to be able to travel to the U.S. So yeah. I have to try to, yeah. try to walk a fine line. Uh, so in regulated mode, the only real inhibition is you can't do open outcry global trading with anyone in the world. You have to trade with these um, these market maker validator pools. Um, and then the idea is those guys are operating under a de minimis exemption in Dodd-Frank where if you trade less than $8 billion a year and they were thinking about lowering it to three, but they figured keep it at eight. Uh, so that's like, you know, 18, 20 mil a day. So, you know, you can be a seven, eight figure balance sheet and, and stay under that limit in this business, I think. Right. Um, so you can trade with those guys, and then those guys are taking leverage and they hedge it some way, like maybe borrowing from from Itbit, you know, and and paying Fed funds rate on their short exposure. And then um, 
you know, that, that can be legit. And ultimately that liquidity, because those dealers can then trade with anyone, they, they, that can collate globally. So people in Japan who aren't under so much regulation about this uh, can ultimately, you know, your, your counterparty could be off hedging to their liquidity, for example, at some point. That got might, it. Got it. No, so I like that. I mean, that's awesome in the sense that, you know, you're very, very pragmatic. Um, you realize that, hey, you know, we were kind of, we even though the space kind of started uh, with this libertarian anarchist dream, that kind of where you could do everything outside the jurisdictions, um, but you want to be able to travel, you want to be able to be a going concern. And so it shows it shows great leadership um, that you're able well, to Well, and, and like, say what you will about Donald Trump, but it's better than like Chinese social credit dystopia. And then imagine like the one belt, one road, greater economic sphere with like a people's blockchain of China that's doing real time, you know, VAT withholding and on and on and freezing your money, et cetera. Like for trading partners, even they, in, in 20 years, the Chinese could be using that to dictate political policies in Africa, for example. Like this is like, I mean, I don't want to like throw out some F-bombs, but like I, yeah. I, I can't I can't be emphatic enough about how much we have to fight that, man. Right. So like I see that like obviously the U.S. empire is kind of corrupt and all that. Um, and there's a lot of crazy stuff going on politically right now. I'm not going to really get into. Right, right. Uh, and like, you know, I didn't mind the tax cut. But um, like Bitcoin, if, if the U.S. government wanted to make an enemy of Bitcoin, I think they could have given they it could, a go. They could but have I think already. they're. Maybe, yeah, but I think that they're using it as, as it's sort of like gold. It's part of this whole Steve Bannon economic warfare kind of chessboard viewpoint, and Bitcoin is on that chessboard. And I'm not sure if it's the queen or if it's a bishop, and if gold is the queen or, or what, you know. But like, if we're Bitcoin maximalists, we would think it's it's the queen and and gold is is a is a bishop or a rook or something. But like the Chinese have been accumulating gold so that when their debt bubble bursts. They can, uh, having taken over gold trading over in Shanghai from London, where the London gold fix could use rehypothecation to manipulate the price and all that, they're going to revalue the price higher, you know, after like a long decade of gold doing jack, jack diddly, yeah. uh, in order to bail themselves out. I think that's their long-term plan. Yeah, so that's like, that's their level of strategic thinking. And they're, you know, they're not like so into Bitcoin, obviously. Uh, and then someone like Steve Bannon would go, oh yeah, Bitcoin, this is what the Gen Z racist kids are going to like, um, <laughs> or whatever, you know? Yeah. So, uh, no, yeah, that's interesting. So, I, 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 I never heard that theory, man, but, but it's, it's, it, I, I, I think it's very, it's very valuable. I mean, in the sense that, you know, China has kind of been very quiet. You don't know what's going on, you know, what they're thinking, but I, 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 I think that that gold theory makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I could see them doing something like what I'm talking about, where I have some cryptocurrency, I short it, and I create a dollar. Uh, in this case, it would be a, a CNY unit instead of a USD unit. Right. Uh, and of course, people in the system they can you can have a CNY denominated contract. People can create you know decentralized CNYs as well. But but I think that the Chinese will do it where you'll have like a token representing gold that's held by an approved you know IB, ICBC or something, an approved custodian, and then you would hedge that into CNY, and there would be the, like they would eventually bring the gold market that's on Shanghai to their you know one belt one world uh governing blockchain that's gonna like entrap a billion people or or three um you know that that could be like our future in the next 10 years um, wow, and then wow, yeah. you know and then meanwhile you, you've got uh ice the biggest exchange holding company in the world essentially using a, a forked white label of well it's not white label it's open source right but a forked version of lightning network to do you know physical quote unquote physical delivery of bitcoin um, so yeah, I think you can see how like the battle lines are, are sort of being drawn there. Um, it'll be interesting to see if there's a resurgence politically in the U.S. of the left, and if they then start printing a shit ton of money, right? So that that could be very catalytic uh, to cryptocurrency prices. Or if we get more of this trend that we've had this decade of like the hardline right wing populist yeah. guys. I could see them being like, you know, we need to be long Bitcoin as a nation so we can outperform the Chinese with their stupid gold. Like they're only right. getting into something. Their their thing is five trillion bucks already. Like to double that, they have to add five trillion in value, right? Like Bitcoin, you can double it with a hundred billion in value. Interesting yeah. theory. Interesting theory. Speaking on the right, I mean, you're you're in South America. Um, Brazil just hired just uh, elected yeah. a very far right person, and Angela Merkel just decided that she's not going to rerun. So we'll see who replaces her. 
So now nah, it's interesting, man. Yeah. It's like, there's, a, there's a crazy time to be alive, fun time to be alive, um, depending on your perspective. <laughs> um, but uh, super cool, man. Listen, you're very busy, man. You're working on such a cool platform, and you have a lot of cool thoughts. I mean, I could keep you on this podcast for uh, another hour, but I know you, yeah, you, 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 you got to wrap it up. So if, if people want to follow you, um, keep in touch, use your platform when it launches, where, where, they should go, where should they go? Um, yeah, so we're on Twitter at TradeLayer. Uh, we have a website, TradeLayer.org, that has some information written, so you don't have to, like, you know, what, what the hell are you saying? Like, track back on the podcast. Um, and uh, I am uh, Duganist on Twitter, D-U-G-A-N-I-S-T. All right, I'll, li- so, I'll, I'll link to all those in the, in the show notes. Sweet. Well, Patrick, this was fun. I really, really appreciate it. And best of luck as you, you know, launch your decentralized exchange. All right, Fritz, I really appreciate it. Yeah, we're hustling towards a uh, maybe we might not make it this week. We might. There's a two day weekend holiday, which is annoying with the Latin American. There's, there's so many holidays, man. It's like All Saints Day. You know, you got to give people a day off for that. Oh, yeah. Anyway, first. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, either this week or next week, we're going to put out the first uh, build that's going to have the testnet. We're going to start doing some like uh, trading competitions on testnet and stuff like that. So I want to get people out pretty soon. And then we're hustling towards hopefully in December, we put out another build that has uh, like the emission of ALL and the regulated stuff and a few other key details that we need to properly launch. And uh, if we get enough people on testnet, then we could possibly put that out and and, and have people test that fast enough that we can actually activate that before Christmas. And then we'll be live on mainnet before the end of the year. That's, that's kind of my goal right now. Excellent. So we'll see how, how that part goes, but yeah, uh, test that very, very soon. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks yeah. again. All right, man. Cheers. And it's a wrap for this episode of the Coin Gamer Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please share it out with members of your network, friends, family, associates. And most importantly, please leave a review on your podcast listening platform, whether it's iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, you name it. That really helps the podcast out. It helps us get more exposure and share our content with more people. And don't forget, we're available to help you out with your blockchain-related projects. Just reach out, coingamma.com. Until next time, 